Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit. We are now addressed by the living Lord through his living word. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and the pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on earth forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heaven were opened, and rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. In the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark. They and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. The flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, give us, we pray, we beseech you for your Holy Spirit now to illumine us this word of God as it's been read. Heavenly Father, this is a dark and challenging chapter in the history of your revelation. Father, would we yet in this scary and puzzling passage that depicts a scary and puzzling event still hear good news? 
Jesus, thank you that you have died and have risen, that we would have life and life in abundance, even life eternal. Would this practice of the reading and preaching of your scriptures, Father, be an exercise in rejoicing in the life that you give to us as we're welcomed by grace and grace alone. Lord, do a work of amazing grace here in these moments. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. Question for you. Which of these two spiritual journeys that I'm about to tell you could be considered Christian spiritual journeys? Which of these two? Journey number one. There I was at rock bottom. I never thought that I'd be so low. I had completely run out of answers. But I never gave up on God. I still hoped, I still trusted, I still depended, I still believed in God, and God got me through. That's journey number one. And now, journey number two. There I was, at rock bottom. I never thought I would be so low. I was completely out of answers. And I'm not proud of it, but if I'm honest... At that rock bottom, I did give up on God. For a season, I stopped hoping. I stopped trusting. I stopped depending. I stopped believing. But, little by little, my situation changed. And little by little, I began to believe and trust and hope in God again. And in retrospect, even though I didn't know it at the time, God got me through. Which of those two stories, two journeys, can be considered Christian journeys? Obviously, the answer is yes. Both of them. And we should all aspire to the first story. We should all aspire, even when we're at rock bottom, to be able to say, I am still hoping, still trusting, still depending, still believing. I am believing, hoping against hope that God is getting me through this rock bottom experience. And some of us in this room are able to say that at different times has been my story. That's awesome. But then others of us are also able to say, or some of us able to say both at different times. Story number two is mine. When at the time, I had lost all hope, including lost all hope in God. But God was still there, and he got me through. And I'm intrigued by story number two, because that signifies for us that God is faithful to rescue and help and save his people in Jesus over and above our ability to hope and trust in him. That's good news, because isn't it the case that specifically at rock bottom, that's when hope dies. That's when hope dies. And maybe you've had rock bottom experiences in your past. Maybe you've had rock bottom experiences right now in your present. Maybe you anticipate things getting worse before they get better. Well, have I got a story for you this morning from Genesis chapter 7. But here's the thing. 
This story here, the flood in Genesis chapter 7, this is not a story of human hope and courage and perseverance and ingenuity or any of those things. In fact, this story is the opposite. This is a story of the triumph of desolation when hope dies. But perhaps paradoxically, that also is good news. Here we are. Genesis sermon series continuing. The heart of the flood, the day creation died. And the chapter progresses. It gets worse and worse at the very beginning. The Lord said to Noah, go into the ark. You and all your household, or verse 4, for in seven days I will send rain upon the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. Brandon Best in the sermon last week wrestled through what that means for the goodness of God, etc. But then by the end of the chapter, when the waters prevailed on the earth, 150 days. That's rock bottom. Would we, in this story, find hope from above. In three parts from here. Let's talk about the story of this text, the story of the flood, then let's connect it with our stories, and then let's connect it with Jesus' story. This is the flood. This is the main event. And let's jump in with a little bit of a close reading here. What do we find? A couple different angles. One is that this is a story of grandeur and gravitas that's designed to capture our imagination. In the book of Genesis, there is a lot of chapters devoted to the flood, and specifically in this chapter, the whole pace of the chapter slows down. There's a lot of detail, and I think the design of that from a literary perspective is that the author of Genesis intends us to absorb all of these details. And you may have had the thought when I was reading through this passage, in English we have these first three paragraphs that are the procession of Noah, his family, and all the animals onto the ark. Sounds kind of repetitive, doesn't it? Wait a second. Haven't we just read this? And from one perspective, skeptical towards the scriptures, people will say, well, this is evidence that the Bible is just this crazy, unintentionally put together, sloppy, cut and paste job. But from my perspective, the details are repeated so that they can sink in. And this is a classic example of tell them what you're going to tell them, tell them, and then tell them what you told them. So basically, we have repeated a couple of times, three total. This is all of the animals and people going into the ark that culminates in the middle of the chapter, verses 15 and 16. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh, in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. And also to heighten the grandeur and gravitas of the scene, there are formalisms, like at the beginning of verse 11. In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the second day of the month, on that day, picture wedding announcements, okay? If you get a wedding announcement in the mail, it probably doesn't say 5-1-22, wedding, XOXOXO, TTYL. But instead, it says the family of so-and-so-and-so-and-so, and the family of so-and-so-and-so cordially invite you to the wedding of Mr. and Mrs. so-and-so-and-so-and-so on the fifth month of the first day of the 2022nd 
year of the, anyway. Really flowerly language, right? It's flowerly language here to commemorate the day because this is a big deal. Or ornate language in the second part of the verse, 11. On that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And then also another formalism at the beginning of verse 13. Thank you for bearing with me for a little bit of a close reading here. On that very same day, Noah and his sons and family went on the ark. That formula, more noticeable to a reader in the original language, Hebrew, that on that very same day is also a marker to say this is important. The day of the Exodus, when the enslaved Israelites went out from Egypt, that formula is used on that very same day. This is a big deal. A day of grandeur and gravitas meant to capture our imagination. But not only that. This scene that's depicted here is a scene of horror. And I always enjoy saying this. It's a scene of horror designed to capture our fears. Think about how often in kids' storybooks and Bible, illustrated Bible books and action figures that depict the ark, everybody's smiling. And it's all this fun. You have all these colors, all these animals, so much fun, the ark. Maybe you can get away with that from an interpretive perspective on the exit from the ark that's coming up in a couple of chapters. But nobody's smiling in Genesis chapter 7. This is a dour and dire and horrific scene by design. The world is ending. And on this chapter, on its basis, the bad guys win. The antagonists, the floodwaters themselves, they win. This is Empire Strikes Back territory. There's no happy ending here. And that's also highlighted in the verses themselves. The drama rises throughout the chapter. You can trace the rising of the waters, like in verse 17. The flood continued 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. And there are alliterations throughout the chapter that pick up towards the end as do the repetitions. So words like prevailed, which by the way is a military word, words like all or every occur around eight times each, or earth, or water, they occur about six times each. And by the way, things like all and earth, that indicates to me that Genesis chapter 7 intends this flood to be taken as a worldwide event. And sort of interestingly, if you look around the world in many prehistoric cultures, there is a memory on, on tablets or cave paintings, the earliest historical records across the world that there was this big flood that happened a long time ago. And what we're looking at here is complete annihilation. End of the chapter. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swam on the earth and all mankind. Commentators say that as we go through these verses, here's a macabre detail for you. Creatures are eliminated in the order that they were created in Genesis 1 and 2. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed, a military term again of conquering on the earth, 150 days. This is annihilation and really nothing less than a rolling back of the created order itself. By the time the waters prevail over the earth, 150 days, we're back to the very beginning of the book of Genesis, 
In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then Genesis 1-2, the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And so here, creation itself has been rolled back. 150 days of rock bottom. Now, let's connect that to our stories, including our stories of rock bottom. I'll say it again. Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 7, when we get to the heart of the flood, this story is not be a Noah. Be just like Noah. And we'll see in some subsequent episodes of Noah, you should not be like a Noah, pretty emphatically. But here, the emphasis is not on the fact that even though the world was at rock bottom, Noah never gave up on God. He never stopped hoping. He never stopped trusting. He never stopped depending. He never stopped believing. Maybe he did. I hope he did. And at the very beginning of the chapter, it's noted that Noah was a righteous man. But there's no details here in this chapter of how Noah kept holding on, hoping against hope. The emphasis from what we actually see here is the exact opposite. It's hopeless. And what do you know? Perhaps disconcertingly or comfortingly, depending on your perspective, that's a frequent view of characters in the Holy Bible. Rock bottom. A couple of Decembers ago in Advent, we went through the book of Ruth. And here's Naomi, one of the main characters in Ruth, a follower of God. She says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? This person is not saying I never gave up on God. Or King David, later on in the Old Testament from Genesis, the one who did have a special relationship with God at one point because of his sin, said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through all my groaning all day long. And at a larger scale, Hopeless situations, rock-bottom situations are all over the place in Scripture. Famine, natural disaster, genocide, displacement, assault, refugee situations. They're all over the place, as they are in our lives. Rock-bottom situations. Before I was somebody that was a follower of Jesus, one of the books that struck me, trying to put together, how do we find hope in a messed up world like this? I read in high school a book called Man's Search for Meaning by a guy named Viktor Frankl, a Holocaust survivor who, who later on became a prominent psychiatrist and psychologist. And it's a really interesting book based, it's in part a memoir talking through his experiences in concentration camps during the Holocaust. And he said, if you begin to live without hope, that is an unlivable situation for a human being. I put what Frankel said as a reflection quote at the beginning of our worship folder. A prisoner, Frankel writes, talked about the many comrades who had died in the last few days, either of sickness or suicide. But he also mentioned what may have been the real reason for their deaths, giving up hope. It's a universal problem. It's a universal problem. Where do we go when hope dies? Now, if you're somebody who's skeptical of spiritual realities or still trying to put some of those pieces together, or if you're a committed Christian or a struggling Christian, let's think for a second here. Let, let's reason together. What do we do? Where do we go? I think very typically for us as human beings, if we're in these hopeless situations, what do we do? We try to build out hope in whatever ways that we can. Let's talk about a couple of those, but understand too, 
how fragile these systems of hope so often are for us. Here I am at rock bottom. But if I can only find myself in a better and more satisfying relationship, I'll be okay. Here I am at rock bottom. But if I only get a slightly better job, or have a slightly better boss, or work slightly less hours, or make slightly more money, then I'll be okay. I'm at rock bottom. But if I can just hold on to this vacation in a few months, I'll be okay. I'm at rock bottom. If I can move, change my location, then I'll be okay. I'm at rock bottom. If I can get a little more fun on weekends, then I'll be okay. If I'm at rock bottom, if I can just get another political leader or a new Supreme Court justice, then I'll be okay. And these things, as far as they go, they're fine to hope in. But if they're ultimate, they're not going to come through for you or for me. Or let's recognize that what I just said is actually pretty naive and optimistic about what we do when we're in rock-bottom situations. Very often, instead, we'll just numb out or try to escape. I'll never have a satisfying relationship, so I'll just do a ton of pornography. I'm never going to be happy, so I'll just give in to all of these addictive behaviors. I'm never going to be worth something as a human being, so I'm just going to self-harm. Being at rock bottom can get really dark really fast. And maybe either before or now, you have been in some of these Noah's Ark-like hopeless situations. And to return to Frankel just for one second, he says hope is really important. One more time from him. One cannot force oneself to be optimistic indiscriminately against all odds, against all hope. We really need hope, but hope is hard to get. And this is a simplistic reading of this guy's whole philosophical system, but I'll just summarize it for you here. As human beings, we need hope. Therefore, if you're in a hopeless situation, pick something. Hope in that. Hope in it with all your might. Common strategy again. But to me, that's just not enough. It's deeply flawed. What if you're hoping in just isn't true? If you're somebody who just believes in a material order, like a thoroughgoing secular perspective, for example, maybe you're a person that would say, well, everything happens for a reason. I get it as far as it goes, and it's better to be optimistic than pessimistic, but if all we have in the universe is this material, chaotic reality, there's no reason to actually say and believe everything happens for a good reason. And... Have I met all 7 billion plus people in the world? Yes. No, I'm just kidding. I have not. But at least anecdotally, I have never found anybody in my experience that I've ever talked to or come in contact with who has been at rock bottom when all they had was everything happens for a reason. And that was enough to get them through. I haven't. I have seen there's an empty tomb. And that's enough to get me through. But then on top of that, pick something, pick a purpose, and see if that'll get you through. That's putting so much pressure on our wills to keep on believing, keep on trusting, keep on hoping. But when you're at rock bottom, especially when you've been there a little while, it's specifically our strength of will that's sapped. Don't stop believing is a great song, bad life motto. 
because we do start. But do you know who doesn't start? God. And God's will is stronger than ours. Even in as dark a chapter, as dark a story as Genesis chapter 7, God is still at work. I love how the procession into the ark concludes at the end of verse 16. And the Lord shut him in. That's an indication, faint but there, that God and his sovereign will is still at work, even in hopeless situations. And this is the Lord that we're talking about here. Interestingly, on either side of the flood narrative from here, all of the talk about God uses the Hebrew word Elohim, which is a generic word for God that was used by other nations. Sort of like how in our English language you can talk about God from a Christian perspective or you can talk about the same word God from other perspectives. That's Elohim. But when we get to the day creation died in Genesis chapter 7, it's not God Elohim. It's God the Lord, Yahweh. And that's the special name that God revealed to his ancient people, the Israelites, to say, I'm with you. I'm a God of deep love and deep protection and deep guidance. I have promised to be your God through thick and thin, from the mountaintops all the way to the rock bottom. And so this story indicates that when our goodness fails and human will dies, God is still at work for our good. Over and above Noah's will and anybody else on the ark is God's will. The flood's still there, but so is God. And real talk about the gospel, the Christian story. The gospel, Jesus crucified and resurrected, takes for granted our rock bottomness and says it's even worse than you think. We're not a little bit messed up. We're like super messed up. And it's not just everybody else's fault all around me all the time. It's also my fault. The Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians, you were dead, dead in your trespasses and sins. But what's good news to me is at base level, for the Christian story, it's not just keep hoping, just keep trusting as hard as you can. And if your faith meter reaches and stays at a certain point, then God's going to be good to you. I don't know your will or your goodness levels. I know my will and my goodness levels. That's not enough. But let me put it this way. There was not on the back of the ark in Genesis chapter 7 a bumper sticker that said, God is my co-pilot. Okay? We really don't have those bumper stickers anymore, but old-timers, do you remember those? God is my co-pilot? In my younger, like, theological kickboxing days, I'd say, that's a bad bumper sticker. God's your pilot pilot, not your co-pilot. You're still on the steering wheel. But do you know what doesn't have a steering wheel? An arc. Do you know what doesn't have a rudder? An arc. Do you know what doesn't have a sail? An ark. What we have here on the ark is it's just one little bottle cork floating in a really big bathtub. And if that little ark is going to bob this way or this way or go over here or go over there, if the waters are going to stay or if the waters are going to recede, it is God's will and God's will alone. 
If there's going to be rescue for humanity, it is by God's will and God's goodness alone. Hope must come from the outside. I know at least a couple of you are sticking with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. From my perspective, maybe the golden age is gone. That's okay. We still enjoy it. There's a series right now, Moon Knight, a lesser-known character, and I'm not going to spoil anything. I think you should watch it. It's pretty good. Towards the beginning, there's a dramatic moment where Moon Knight, the main character who's trying to figure out his own identity, says to the bad guy who's taunting him, the bad guy says, are you so broken? And the main character, Moon Knight, says back, I'm not broken, I just need some help. And the basis of that show itself, the main character suffers from dissociative identity disorder, previously called multiple personality disorder. And in terms of the show, that's a positive statement of mental health. No, just because I have these issues, that doesn't make me more broken than anybody else. But at a larger level, as we engage the Christian story, what we're able to say, and to me this is better news, is it's not only I'm not broken but I need help, it's I am broken and I need help. And that gives more hope. After the sermon, we're going to sing the song Amazing Grace. And we're not going to sing, I was a little misdirected, but then was found. I needed corrective lenses, but then I could see. It's I was lost, but then was found. I was blind, but then I see. And to me, that subverts so many assumptions about Christians. Oh, they think they're the good people that are better than everybody else. I am happy to have conversations with my skeptical friends and neighbors to say, I'm not better than anybody. I've been at rock bottom, and I'm just saying to Jesus, I'm broken and I need help. And let's connect all of this with Jesus' story. The flood here in Genesis chapter 7, it's a sign of God's judgment and also of uncreation. So is the cross. A sign of God's judgment. And in some ways, the cross fulfills the, the, the urgency and the motif of the flood. The cross, a sign of God's judgment, where the flood of God's wrath for sin came upon the sun. And also on the cross, creation itself is rolled back. Uncreation comes upon the sun as darkness was over the cross and all the world from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. There's an ancient church leader, Ephraim the Syrian, that put it this way. That's a great name. I'm Ephraim the Syrian. Oh, where are you from? Ephraim the Syrian. He said this. The sun hid its, about the cross, the sun hid its face so as not to see him when he was crucified. It retracted its light, light back into itself to die with him. There was darkness for three hours. And as a church family, pretty recently, we had our Good Friday service, Right? And we try to build in some gravitas to the Good Friday service. If you were here watching online, we don't do a benediction that day. So we can sit with the weight of the tomb a little bit longer. We're going to wait till Sunday to get God's good word of sending. Love how we do that. But even as we sit in the darkness of Good Friday, as we did a couple of weeks ago, there's Sunday on our mind. We're going to meet Jesus. That first Good Friday was not like that. When Jesus was crucified, put in the tomb, and the stone was rolled over, that's not when the disciples and others said, okay, this is great, 
Sunday's going to be awesome. You're bringing the chips and guac. I've got the chicken fingers, and who's bringing the beer? We're going to meet Jesus. I can't wait. Instead, it was rock bottom. The stone rolled before the tomb was rock bottom for all things. There's hopelessness built into that story. The end of the crucifixion there. The women who had come with Jesus from Galilee followed Joseph and saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath, they rested according to the commandment. But on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. Not potpourri, but spices to prepare a dead body. But in that hopelessness, Jesus springs to life. Above our ability to merit any favor from God, there is an empty tomb and a resurrection again by God's goodness and by God's forgiveness. And we need this story for all of our hopelessness, whether you're in a hopeless situ situation now or file it away for later. One of the treasures for me as a pastor, I am able to sit with people in deep hopelessness. And I get to hear some really crazy bad situations. I'm glad to share those situations with people. And sometimes all I can say Here's a pastoral tip. If somebody's in a really bad situation, don't listen to them. Just talk a lot and try to fix it for them. I'm just kidding. This probably wouldn't work. I do mostly listening. Occasionally I'll be asked, do you have anything to say? You're a pastor? Got anything? Sometimes all I have to say is, this looks like a really hopeless situation. I'm going to pray. I'm with you. We're going to work on this together. I don't see a way out. But I do know that God is at work and he's not done. I do know that God is at work and he's not done. And in situation after situation after situation, that's not nothing. And God works. I'm going to say something that I thought about not saying, but I think it's okay to say. It's a little, well, you'll understand. Your quality of faith in Jesus kind of doesn't matter. And let me clarify that. Whether you have the strongest faith in the world or the weakest faith in the world, and should you have strong faith or weak faith, let's help each other grow in bold, rock-ribbed, solid faith in Jesus, trusting in the scriptures, building our house by the Spirit of God on the rock and not on sinking sands. But whether you have strong faith or weak faith, you get the same Savior. And God's ability to rescue, help, forgive, save, depends not on the quality of your faithfulness, but on the quality of your faithful Savior. That's why it's amazing grace, and not you're amazing and I'm amazing. We need this story for our hope. We also need it for forgiveness, and I'll say this just briefly. Rock bottom can be a pretty guilty place, guilty feeling. And sometimes when we're at rock bottom, it really is not our fault at all. I think one of the great things as the gospel weaves itself into our lives, we're able to own what we need to own, and then by God's justice, say, this is wrong, not your fault. This is wrong, not your fault. We're able to look in both directions. But whether 
rock bottom involves our fault or not, we can feel really guilty there. But trust that the flood of God's judgment truly came upon the Son, and if you believe in the Son, you are forgiven. So if you're a follower in Jesus, I'll say this, you're forgiven, get over it. That is one fix-it. You're forgiven, get over it. Or maybe better, live into it. Take joy in it. Let your soul reflect that reality. And then finally, we need this story for our mission. Deconstructing so many opinions about what Christianity is. But instead, telling and showing. And we can tell and show the graciousness of God by signing up at Urban Promise next weekend. By figuring out better how to show and tell the evangelism conference. But by all of our lives, as we live, speak, and serve as Jesus' very presence, live out the reality that in Jesus Christ, we are graced with good news. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later. <laughs>